0: With the new academic year beginning shortly, students, faculty, and staff returning to higher education or arriving for the first time face uncertainty. There is anxiety about a fall term like no other. The author of the piece is Dr. Ishwar K. Puri. He is the Dean of Engineering and a Professor of Mechanical Engineering at McMaster University in Hamilton. And the, the piece that he wrote for the conversation is entitled, Five Ways University Education is Being Reimagined in Response to COVID-19. Dr. Puri, Ishwar, good morning, sir. Welcome.
1: Good morning. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, this is indeed an unprecedented time for educators at uh, all levels of the education system. Dr. Puri, What? Uh, w- uh, let's talk a little bit about the sort of uh, institutional changes that all schools, regardless of whether they're for little kids or post-secondary students, are going to have
1: to make. So we've made changes already and we did these very rapidly and in real time. Our challenge is to now solidify these changes. When we first, for instance, made the changes, the philosophy was the pandemic is here. Good enough is just good enough. But now we have to have the philosophy that good enough is just not good enough. We need to give students an awesome experience. And so in the article, I've laid out five ways by which we can do so by leveraging the changes that we've already made.
0: Okay, now let me let me just add one more sentence. So this is my favorite sentence in the whole article. Those of us responsible for ensuring the futures of post-secondary students have endured months of existential fears about student and employer, employee health and safety, the efficacy of online teaching and virtual learning, and what it all means for enrollment and revenue. And you add to that... Enough already. So uh, lots of anxiety, Dr. Puri, as we go forward and get ready for this school. Uh, You've gotten beyond the anxiety. You've moved into a positive phase where you've got five different ways education can be reimagined. And part of this, and there's a technical term that I need you to help us with before we dive into it. We're talking in some cases about VR and AR. What do those terms mean, please?
1: Sure. Um, To begin with, um, I think you're right. There's been a lot of hand-wringing about what has beset us, and we've been thinking about will students come, won't they come, will there be revenue? Are we doing the right thing by just being good enough? Are we doing the right thing by going online? Mm -hmm. The enough already is simply to say, hey, the challenge is here. Let's get our heads in a space where we give our students the best experience. So how can we do that? One way to do that is to virtualize education. And that just doesn't mean going online. There's a talking head with a few slides, a PDF or PowerPoint Mm -hmm. just talking at you. You have to engage students. In order to engage students, you've got to give them experiential opportunities. So for instance, in engineering, students make circuits. One of our professors has created a VR or a virtual reality platform where you wear Google Glass and you look at a circuit and you can actually pick a circuit, a transistor, a capacitor, a resistor. You can hook up this circuit to power. You can see how the circuit behaves. And, you know, in some cases, the circuit won't work. It might actually blow up. Hmm. So a team of four students can work on the circuits from their homes, connected through the virtual reality environment, and they can work with each other. But Sterling, this is no different from what the current generation is doing. They wear these glasses. They communicate with each other They use gamification platforms and virtual reality platforms. It's just that we are late to the party and we have to now ramp up our efforts.
0: And and you certainly have willing subjects, and, and you're right, Ishwar, because uh, the kids uh, th- th- that are uh, using the technology as you have an ac- academic application for it, you're right. They, they play with this stuff all the time and with each other uh, using the... So the, the, the idea here, and you use the circuit as an example. So you would have, say, a cluster of four students working on a project together, which is certainly a very normal sort of thing, except that the four students... Working on the project simultaneously, they're not just at home on their individual laptops or computer terminals. They're all wearing those virtual reality goggles, right?
1: That's right. So so they're all seeing
0: the same image at exactly the same time.
1: That is absolutely correct. So you're bang on target there. Now, these virtual reality goggles, they can wear expensive ones or inexpensive ones okay. like Google, Google Glass. So I think that access is very important. You want to make the technology inexpensive that the, a wide variety of the, of the demographic can make use of it. So there's a way to do online learning by virtualizing it uh, properly. And we've got to get away from just regurgitating material as one would do in a lecture And really what the pandemic tells us is if we are able to do that, we can get away from the rote learning that we've invested in for so long. We can go towards experiential learning where students can actually have experiences, or we can even go to what is called challenge-based learning, where you pose a challenge to a team of students. They come together, they do some independent work, they are mentored by professors, by instructors, by teachers. And as they solve the challenges, they learn. They learn separately. They, 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 they learn the subject material. They mm-hmm. become subject experts. But they also learn how to work with each other to solve problems. And as you know, the problems of the world right now are quite intractable. The opioid crisis, climate change, and so on. So I think we have to move towards project-based learning, experiential learning, and challenge-based learning and the pandemic gives us an opportunity to do exactly that.
0: Well, Dr. Purry, you're on to something, sir, because the pandemic has created, again, necessity being the mother of invention uh, all of a sudden. And we had an experiment here in British Columbia. We did actually have school for the month of June, basically, before, and it was a dry run. The ministry was right up front about it. They said, look, uh, you don't have to send your kids back if you don't want, but we'd sure like it if you did, because we need to do a dry run for what's gonna happen in September. And so lots of kids stayed home, but lots of kids went to school and and they, so teachers had an opportunity to experiment with social distancing and various other logistical realities. But during that time, also Dr. Puri, parents were, <laughs> however unwillingly in many cases, suddenly becoming substitute teachers and learning about the online experience. And so there you were with your laptop or your your iPad or whatever, and, and back to your point about the sort of single platform. Okay, here's, here's, we're substituting the classroom experience for what you're seeing on your laptop. And yes, here's my face and here are a few slides pertinent to the subject matter. But As this goes forward, do you expect, because I agree with you that there needs to be more in terms of the participatory learning experience to have it all be beneficial, Uh, do you see teachers at all levels recognizing this and striking out on their own, if necessary, to create more interesting, interactive experiences?
1: I don't see how they cannot. I mean, the future is going to be very competitive. We are going to have to come out of the pandemic. And to come out of the pandemic, we are going to have to educate talent that will lead us into the future. Sure. The infrastructure of the past was very physical. So when one came out of an economic crisis, you built roads, dams, etc. But today's infrastructure, just take Zoom for example, right? Or take Microsoft Teams for example. Today's infrastructure is very digital in addition to building physical infrastructure, the way Canada moves ahead with its talent is by enhancing its digital infrastructure. Now, when we enhance the digital infrastructure, we have to educate people to make use of it. Mm-hmm. You can't just build a digital infrastructure and then just use it to watch Netflix or, 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 or stream movies or play games. So I think This challenge that the pandemic um, poses for us is also an opportunity, and I don't see how we can't uh, make use of it to enhance the economic strength and the competitiveness of our country.
0: We're having a conversation about post-secondary school with Dr. Ishwar Puri. Dr. Puri is the Dean of Engineering and a professor of Mechanical Engineering at McMaster University in, Halif- in Hamilton, rather, and wrote a piece uh, for theconversation.com entitled Five Ways University Education is Being Reimagined in Response to COVID-19. Dr. Puri, we were talking before the news break about uh, the necessity for this and how uh, out of necessity, because of the pandemic and because of so much homeschooling requirement, many teachers took it upon themselves in all corners of Canada uh, recently and will doubtless continue to do more of same uh, this fall uh, and and started getting creative on their own. So between the time when teachers had to basically make it up on the fly and the resumption of classes this fall, uh, and I know there's an emphasis on returning to the classroom as much as possible, but there will continue to be a video dimension to it all are you anticipating that below a post secondary in other words K to 12 teachers and educators are out of necessity going to again be more creative this semester simply because they know their students need to be engaged
1: absolutely i think that uh, the pandemic has unleashed tremendous creativity However, what I also observe is that the creativity occurs in pockets and independently. Good point. What we need is leadership that connects the creativity. It doesn't make sense for different instructors, teachers, school districts, universities to be making content on their own. It's a wasteful exercise. And mostly that exercise is paid for by public funds. So I think what we need is local leadership, provincial leadership, national leadership to coordinate all these efforts. And moving into the future, even after the pandemic, all of these efforts are going to be of great use. So imagine if someone is ill or they are immunocompromised and for some reason cannot attend class, Mm -hmm. they would be able to do so using blended learning. Some of the learning they do at home and some of the learning they do in the classroom. And really, why only have one physical place as a place of learning? One could have ubiquitous learning. And I'm not only talking about traditional students, but think about students that are non-traditional who might want to retool themselves after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. They might want certain skills and competencies, but they're unable to go to a physical place. They could then be taught in a very intelligent manner Where some of the learning occurs online and then some of the learning that they would experience would be in a physical space where they would actually do something, interact with people, collaborate on projects and so on.
0: Right. Dr. Puri, you talk about in the course of your article about uh, the ways in which universities uh, in the future will be reimagined. You talk about ending the credit hour. What does that mean?
1: So in 1906, Andrew Carnegie, who's, who was an industrialist and a philanthropist, sure wanted to come up with a pension system for post-secondary education, educators, you know, instructors, professors in universities. And so uh, after a lot of discussion, uh, because of his efforts, the pension system was based on instructor workloads. And at that time, there was consensus that an instructor in a course taught three credit hours, which means three hours a week. And then, of course, they did extra work in marking and in uh, meeting with students, etc. Mm-hmm. But their contact time with students was basically three credit hours. And based on that, they would build a pension system. Now, a 100 odd years later, We are using that system, which was developed for instructor workload, to actually uh, measure learning. So if you think about universities, they typically build their curriculum in three credit hour blocks, Uh and then they stack those blocks. Mm -hmm. So you take a course, it's three credit hours, then you take a subsequent course and you stack that up. And then you stack up 120 credit hours or 130 credit hours, depending on university and degree program, you get a degree. Now, it's absurd that a metric of instructor course load is used to measure learning, because learners have different styles. And by the way, uh, this only measures lecture-based learning, which was the predominant mode in, in 1906.
0: Exactly, yeah. That's
1: right. It doesn't measure you know, project-based learning, mm-hmm. challenge-based learning, it doesn't tell you anything about the human skills and competencies of the student uh, of the learner. I mean are they are they creative? can they design something? Do they understand how to work with different people? Do they understand big problems? And so the plea that I'm making is let's end this credit hour and have a more rational measure of learning that can actually certify students in such a way that their employment outcomes are very clear to employers who want to hire them.
0: Sure. Doubtless, there's lots of enthusiasm among students for these changes that you're suggesting, Dr. Puri. However, they will affect mostly staff. What sort of appetite do you detect amongst your peers for such change?
1: So I think mixed. uh, Change is already always hard. And so, uh, you know, there would have to be national leadership. There would have to be change management. Yep. For change management, the first thing you need to do is create a sense of urgency. And I think the pandemic has created that sense of urgency. Then there has to be a vision, a guiding coalition, a coalition, and you need some easy wins. And there are some easy wins that many universities, many other places of learning, are having by offering non-traditional ways of assessing the skills, competencies, learning of learners. And then, of course, you know, once you have the easy wins, then you can get people to jump on the train. And uh, so it's going to be a process, but I think we should start now. yeah. And I think it's going to be healthy for Canada.
0: I agree. Uh, Final question to you, Dr. Prairie, and we are grateful for your time this morning. Very provocative stuff. There are a lot of Canadian post-secondary students heading back to something or other, resembling what they remember from last year, heading back this fall, many of whom are anticipating a, shall we say, less than stellar educational experience, to use your phrase, and it matters a great deal. So some of those students are saying, look, it's not going to be anywhere near the same as I'm accustomed to or expecting. So as a result, I'll, I'll play ball. I'll go along with whatever you got going on because I need the credentials and I need to move forward in my life. But I don't think I should pay full the full pull dollar, the top dollar for an experience I know I'm not going to get. I want a discount. What do you think about that?
1: So two things. One thing is we have to make sure that we give them the top dollar experience. So the experience that students get in a brick and mortar university is not only their academic learning, but the experiences of working in teams, of meeting people, of developing life skills. absolutely, And we have to have virtual platforms that engage students in all of those non-academic experiences. The second thing I would say is that all of this transition that we are making towards virtual learning and engaging students on virtual platforms is very expensive. Mm-hmm. We don't have the infrastructure and we are building that infrastructure and it requires talent. And the talent that we have today that can really make use of that infrastructure is expensive. And so, online learning, virtual learning, if done well, can be somewhat as good as face to face learning. I don't think it's ever going to replace face to face learning, but it is expensive. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting stuff. Dr. Purry. I have to leave it there, sir. I'm very grateful for your for the opportunity to have you on the program and have this, this conversation. I'd like to keep your phone number, and as we get going into the academic year, maybe give you a buzz in a couple of months and see how things are playing out, and particularly how, how perhaps the need for what we've discussed this, this morning has become even more apparent and crystallized. Thanks again for this morning, Ishwar. It was great to speak to you, sir.
1: Thank you, Sterling, and I'll be very happy to come back. Excellent. You're a great host. We'll look forward to it.
0: Good stuff. That's Dr. Ishwar Puri from McMaster University, where he is the Dean of Engineering and a Professor of Mechanical Engineering. We have a guest joining us from Toronto from Restaurants Canada. And restaurant owners, by the way, issued a stark warning to federal policymakers this week on Wednesday saying that more than half of all Canadian eateries could go out of business in the next three months as the pandemic continues to discourage people from dining out. Now, Restaurants Canada is a lobby group representing 30,000 firms, and they've been meeting with federal officials calling for a range of supports for the food service sector, which has been clobbered by COVID-19 uh, over the last several months. Joining us from Toronto is the Vice President for Central Canada of Restaurants Canada, James Rylott is with us. Mr. Rylott, James, good morning. Thank you for joining us, sir.
2: Well, thanks
0: for having me, Sterling. Well, it's a pleasure. We had David LeFevre on a couple of weeks ago about this. And since that time, uh, your efforts have continued virtually nonstop with the feds. Uh, and now tell us about uh, this warning came Wednesday uh, or this week, James, because of more meetings with the feds. And you're really zeroing in on a couple of key issues that you see as vital to the survival of the restaurant industry. And those are the CERB and rent relief. Expand on that, if you would, for us, please, this morning
2: um yeah well the the main things are, are uh, the wage subsidy uh that which is basically most restaurants that are pro, uh, that are uh being are able to open it's because of the wage subsidy paying right. uh the subsidy and uh, the, you know that money goes directly to the employees and that that allows them to to be open so um, we're saying let's keep that going uh, it's it's helping it's helping employ people it's helping keep businesses open and this uh, pandemic is going to go on a while especially in the restaurant industry we're still going to face restrictions for a while so that needs to continue All right, let me yeah, let, let me thanks. interrupt
0: Jim yeah. just for a second because I misnamed it I, I was referring to the CERB and of course uh, we're talking about as you say the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy which is another program and even more critical to the success of the survival of restaurants.
2: Yeah, it is, and and, and that's there's so many acronyms it's hard to keep them. Yeah, I know, sometimes. I know. Um, and the other one is the uh, what we call the SECRA, which is Canadian Emergency uh, Rent. Con- er- Oh, sorry, rent <laughs> see, I don't even know uh, anyway, it, it helps with rent, and uh, the problem with that program is that uh, landlords have to sa- sign up for it, and right. we've seen a reluctance for for landlords to sign up. So what we're saying to the government is if as landlords don't sa- sign up for this, our debt continues to grow, so give us that money directly, we'll uh, use it to pay down our debt and at least make it uh, make it uh, more Likely that our restaurants will will stay open. James, what um, that, what what, what yep. is
0: what is the holdup here? I mean, I'm thinking of a of a local example, and unfortunately, there are hundreds of similar examples in every province in Canada this morning. But I'm thinking of a local example here in Burnaby, next door in in, in Burnaby, uh, well known fine dining restaurant. Been there for a couple of decades. They're closing at the end of this month, which is Monday, because their landlord not only had not ab- agreed to cooperate on the rent program but james the landlord jacked up the rent 40 percent, and these people went well that's it and they're, they're just after 24 years they're done they can't afford it so uh, and i'm not talking about the jacking up of the rent that's a whole other ball game but why are so many landlords reluctant to sign on and help out their tenants with rent relief i don't understand it james
2: it's, you know what? I've talked to a lot of people. I, I've not heard a good reason that we, we're we're astounded ourselves. Um, you know, the industry is, is where it is right now, and it's not like if you kick out a, a restaurant that another one's going to rent that space right away. Right. Um, and it's the same with most of the of the uh, economy. There's not a lot of uh, uh, people expanding right now. So I don't know why you'd want an empty space. One of the reasons we've heard is that a lot of these... Uh, property management companies are big multinationals and, and they, you know, have a office somewhere overseas and they really don't care. Right. Um, but I, I don't want to stive any, any, uh, motives, but I, it, it astounds me as well. I, I, I don't know why you wouldn't say, yes, I want, I want to take some government money and yes, I, I'm willing to uh, suffer a little because take, cause the biggest argument that they have is they don't want to take, the twenty-five percent hit, right? But um, you know, it's either twenty-five take off twenty-five percent or get nothing.
0: Well, that's it. So that's, I don't. I don't understand exactly. It. It's either seventy-five percent of what you're accustomed to or nothing. And so, you know, the options aren't really. It's not much of a head scratcher from a from a bystander point of view, if you know what I mean, James.
2: Yeah, and you know, I'm not a high high, high business guy, so maybe there is a reason. Um, it hasn't been given to us yet. Um, it's frustrating. Um, but, you know, to all those, all those landlords that have signed up and that mm-hmm. have done, uh, the best that they can and have, uh, cut deals, uh, more power to them. Thank you for that. They've, they've done great things for our industry. It's just, there needs to be more
0: of them. Yeah. And the other thing that you and your uh, fellow executives with the Canadian Restaurant Association have been talking to the feds about, James, is this, uh, this, this, you want them to switch emphasis a little bit to encourage people to do no, more normal things. Of course, the message for many, many months is, well, it started with go home and stay there. And, of course, now we're in phase three in most provinces and phase four in others and so on. Things are loosening up a little, but the emphasis, and you'll see this from well-meaning provincial health officials who will still express enormous concern about dining indoors, and I know they mean it quite well, but every time that kind of concern is expressed by that sort of official, you can just feel the restaurant people in the room, and I have one in my home, going, Ouch. Oh, thanks for nothing. So what you're trying to do is get the government to try to change its approach. Not, they're not trying to abandon safety protocols and procedures, James, just their approach to dining.
2: Yeah, we definitely, we, we, we need people to understand that dining is safe, that getting out there is safe. And what our, our message, we, we believe the government needs to say, be responsible yes we 're starting to get into some normalcy in your life, um, but you know don't go to backyard barbecues don 't have a party. go to a restaurant where it's where people are taking care of your safety who are cleaning the restaurant thoroughly, um, where you will be socially distanced. You get a little bit of normalcy back to your life, but you 're being responsible and you're uh, you know you're allowing to yourself to uh, Live normally for for a little bit anyway.
0: And it sure feels good. Had lunch on a patio just a couple of days ago, James, and it felt positively, fabulously normal. According to restaurantscanada.org, before the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, Canada's food service sector was a $93 billion industry directly employing 1.2 million people, providing Canada's number one source of first jobs and serving 22 million customers. Across the country, every day. My, how times have changed. James, R- James Rylott is with us. Mr. Rylott is a vice president with Restaurants Canada, joining us from the area in which he is, for which he is responsible, Central Canada. He's in Toronto this morning. James, uh, patio season. I had lunch at a place called the Craft Beer Market. Never been there before. In the Olympic Village here in Vancouver a couple of days ago with my wife and an old friend, and it felt fantastic it was a beautiful day the food was terrific the company was excellent it felt positively normal and i i must confess uh, it was only the second patio lunch we've had all summer long both of them have been very pleasant the patio has been critical uh for the restart of a lot of people's return to the restaurant period it has been an important bridge hasn't it this summer
2: it definitely has and uh it's it's enabled people to uh well it's enabled customers to get back to the restaurants but it also has enabled restaurants to get back to doing what they what they do is and that's entertaining people socializing uh helping people make helping people celebrate (laughs) various occasions and, and like you said just just relaxing um so patios have been great uh municipalities all across the country have been great about uh helping us to, uh, helping restaurants to expand their patios. They have. uh, So it's really been a, it's been a great experience. Um, But we also know that the time is, that the clock is ticking on on patios. Well, I'm curious
0: though, as to what, what, what factor, how much of a factor, the combination of the patio season uh, coming and with the bizarre, but nonetheless incredibly well-timed for this purpose, hockey season, suddenly you've got a reason for people to want to get together and, and uh, go out and celebrate with their friends and watch a game baseball's back hockey's back all of that sort of thing is is the momentum that's coming from this return of sorts is that it's going to be critical isn't it James because the weather's not going to stay patio warm off all, all that much longer
2: yeah, it's, it's true. And, um, the, the sports have helped. Uh, we haven't seen the, the great, uh, hordes of people that want to come out to bars as, as, as usual during sure. playoff time. But, uh, at least it's something on in the background. It, 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 it again is that normal feeling that, that people are, are after. So that's been, that's been really good and, and that's helped everything. Um, so yeah, it's, it's great to have sports back on and, uh, and it's, it's helping everything get back to normal. So uh, we,
0: yeah. Go ahead. No, you, you, and your team have been lobbying the federal government. This report that came out earlier this week and uh, subsequent news stories uh, pointed to the fact that you've been doing a lot of intense lobbying. In a perfect world, James, were the government of Canada to say, "Okay, whatever you need, here it is." What, what would, what would you have them give you?
2: Well, we continue those programs that we talked about earlier, but. You know, I know it's a lot to ask, but the the, the government of the UK had a had a program that ha- helped people get out. And what it did was, uh, if you went to a restaurant and you spent money on on certain things, basically anything other than alcohol, um, they would refund you up to ha- they would pay ha- up to half your bill. Oh, um, you know that was a great program, and I'm sure it cost them lots of money. And uh, it's it. But it really helped. We're seeing numbers from from the UK, just astounding numbers um, because of that program. So if we could do something like that, basically what we're thinking is a lot of people still haven't got out to restaurants. A lot of people still don't... they got used to not going. Mm -hmm. And I think when people get out there the first time they'll realize, Oh yeah, I kind of missed this. And so what we're trying to do is get the government to get a program, to get people back. And we've been working with tourism associations and, and other associations to try and create something that, that will, uh, that will, uh, meet that goal for everyone. And, uh, Hopefully, the the government's able to create some kind of program.
0: I'm I'm not f- terribly familiar with the the UK program, so back me up a step here, James. How many uh, how many free lunches did Boris Johnson promise customers? But w- if they return to restaurants,
2: I haven't seen the numbers on that. It, it was actually a pretty easy program for the customers because uh, it basically just you took it off the bill, and then the uh, um, and then the operator just. Put the the bill into or sent the bill uh, rebate into the government and and got it back that way. So oh, okay. I don't know how much they spent. I haven't seen numbers on it, and uh, uh, we're just uh, starting to investigate it now because it's still a fairly new program. It's only it only was a few weeks old, so um, uh, we're just trying to get some data on it now. To to pitch to the government.
0: Uh, as part of your lobbying efforts, and I've touched on this once before, James, uh, in addition to speaking to the finance ministry and other, other government officials, uh, you also speak to health, public health officials constantly as you're responsible to them for the safety protocols that you put in place to sur- for your staff and for your clientele. Uh, we mentioned this before in terms of the lack of enthusiasm from public health officials with respect to encouraging people to go to restaurants restaurants and go out and dine. In fact, some of them are kind of stark and negative. Uh, uh, do you have a chance to speak to the provincial officers of health across the country going, we know you're a doctor and we know what your concerns are, but Jeepers, we're trying to run a business here. Can you give us at least a bit of a break?
2: Yeah, you know, it depends on the public health officer. Well, we we've, I, I've talked to a lot uh, that are, are very helpful that even with the uh, the provincial guidelines they'll try and go out of the way to to try and make them work for you yeah uh so we've lots of them uh and uh lots of people tell us it, this that we're not seeing the spread in restaurants where we're seeing the spread is is uh at home and at parties at parties and, and yep. mingling and mm-hmm. so so they're willing to help, but then unfortunately, when it gets up to the to the p- politician level for some reason. I, I don't know if they just don't want to take the chance of, uh, uh, having it come back on them or what it is, but you know, they'll, they'll just, they'll talk about if there's a start, the numbers start to creep up. The first thing they talk about is, well, oh, maybe we'll have to chart, uh, to close restaurants yeah. and bars, so it's it's unfortunate, it's frustrating, but uh, it's what we have, and uh, we'll just continue to ha- fight that fight.
0: Yep, thirty seconds for this one, James, uh, and we're, uh, and that's the whole notion of giving your name and a phone number and a contact point when you go to any restaurant for any reason. It's all about contact tracing. It's what you do when you go out. Some people uh, will experience this for the first time. It's no biggie, is it?
2: No, it's not at all. And, you know, we've had some people, uh, uh, push back but it's usually one person will push back and somebody else from the uh, uh from the party will say well here take my name so it's it's not bad it's 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 a great uh, uh, way to uh keep do contract tracing if that's what it takes to be open we'll do it
0: restaurantscanada.org a great website to learn more about what the industry is doing to keep its head above water and james we do appreciate your time today uh, thanks very much for joining us and considerable yeah. success for your efforts too. Thanks a lot. You have a great day. You too. James Ryla joining us from Toronto. He's a vice president of Restaurants Canada. Brian Rushton is joining us right now from North Vancouver. Mr. Rushton is a the executive vice president with Century 21 Realty. And they have just released their fourth annual price per square foot survey of Canadian real estate. Uh, Vancouver still up there. Montreal and Toronto closing the gap and all the details from Brian Rushton right now. Mr. Rushton, Brian good morning. Thanks for joining us.
3: Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here.
0: It's a pleasure, Brian. So let's talk about uh, the National Price Per Square Foot Survey. This is the fourth year you've had it. What started it in the first place?
3: I think a a peak of interest as it relates to house price surveys across the country. There's been several models uh, that have been done over the years. We chose to do the six-month span from January to June of each year Uh, just on a price per square foot to kind of give you an idea of of the variations across the country. And it seems to have got a fair amount of traction, so we've continued that on.
0: Is this uh, a price per square foot of any property available on the market, Brian, or is it specifically
3: residential property? Specifically residential or condos or semi-detached and detached. Uh, Yeah, we've got uh, variations in some markets where we don't have the availability to get the condo prices and so on. But yes, truly, uh, specifically to residential real estate.
0: Well, you know, I mean, the, some of the old cliches just came rolling out of the uh, uh, out of the woodwork when I started looking at this. You know, at, at again, real estate is not national; real estate is definitely local. And oh my gosh, what a huge country we are, Brian! Look at this: the most expensive per square foot condo in the country is in downtown Vancouver at eleven hundred and ninety-two bucks a square foot. That same condo in Saint John's, Newfoundland. Will cost you one hundred and sixteen dollars a square foot. That's quite a wide discrepancy.
3: Quite a quite amazing from one uh, from one coast to the other. No question about that. And of course, Vancouver has been kind of the jewel of of the west coast or of Canada for for investors as well as for people wanting to live in downtown Vancouver. Indeed. Uh, lifestyle and many other things. But yeah. Quite a uh, quite a gap from uh, Newfoundland to uh, to British Columbia. No, no
0: kidding. And six of the top ten most expensive areas in Canada are right here in Metro Vancouver.
3: Correct, correct. And it's uh, that that bodes well, obviously, for the West Coast. It also provides some challenges with that as well, uh, because of course the first time buyers getting into the market is that much more difficult here in Vancouver.
0: Uh, let's talk about that because the one thing that we are noticing here in Vancouver, Brian, is is that the that there's a quite there seems to be not, the word glut comes to mind, but it's not applicable yet. But there certainly is a strong supply of condos in this marketplace. All of a sudden, after years and years of oh boy, anything anything resembling a condo pre-sold in a heartbeat, now it's competitive, and there are quite a number of them. There are options for first time buyers
3: for a change there are and i think the uh, the difficulty of course being again that price per square foot when you talk about a thousand or eleven hundred dollars a square foot mm-hmm. for downtown vancouver it's uh, it's pretty pricey and i think from a first-time home buyer's point of view uh, we've kind of driven a lot of those first-time home buyers outside of the downtown core and uh, some have gone as far as chilliwack or other areas uh, to get a little more reasonable price sure. yes they they have to deal with the commute but uh home ownership is still very important in the priority list right now.
0: Are you surprised by the degree of activity that uh, has occurred over the summer? I suppose, given the fact that spring is typically the busiest time of, of the real estate calendar year after year, and this year in spring, Brian, we were all locked out. Go home and stay home. We didn't have a chance to do much of anything, so there was a sort of a pent-up demand. So there's been a flurry of activity over the summer. Has that surprised you, or did you pretty much call that one? One in advance?
3: Well, you know, I wish I had have called it exactly the way it was, but I didn't. I think that when we get into mid March, uh, yeah, we, we didn't quite know exactly what was going to take place with the spring market. Uh, this is something that we've never gone through before. We've gone through other sorts of uh, catastrophes in the real estate business, but not a pandemic. And uh, certainly that March, uh, from mid March to the end of April, was uh, a bit of a sketchy sort of territory for us. Uh, from a projection point of view, mm-hmm. but it was pretty evident once we got into the first part of May that, uh, as you say, that pent-up demand for the spring market started to come together, and I think that we found some creative ways to get people exposed to properties by way of virtual tours and so on and so forth that cut them back in the market again. And certainly, uh, as, as you as you know, by the end of June, the 1st of July, we were rocking and rolling as it relates to a spring market and and catching up on that pent-up demand.
0: We're speaking with Brian Rushton, Executive Vice President of Century 21 uh, here in Vancouver. Uh, Brian, the... mortgage deferral uh, dates are coming up for people who, because of a variety of reasons, have been successful with negotiating uh, deferrals of mortgage payments for up to six months with their various lending institutions. A a lot of that is going to stop over the next couple of months, and people who have not been able to make mortgage payments will be required to do so. And of course, the deferred uh, amount simply gets added to the end of the mortgage. But how is that, uh, How when that window closes for de- deferrals and people are required to pony up the dough or face consequences, how's that going to affect the market, the housing market, if at all?
3: Yeah, good question. I think that, uh, you know, in addition to that, uh, uh, the, the mortgage deferral program and some of the government programs coming to an end uh, in the fall market, it's going to maybe make a little bit of a, uh, a storm for some people. I think there are some concerns in, in some parts of the market as it relates to uh, unemployment and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, we don't see it as being a big factor at this point. I think that uh, uh, there you know, people, especially homeowners, are, are very conscious of the fact of their obligations of mortgages and taxes and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so they are making plans. I think there are going to be some people, there's no question about it, that unfortunately will we'll be in a tight position come this fall. Uh, And we'll have to do some rejigging in their own personal lives. And that means, uh, you know, whether that's downsizing their property or uh, selling and getting their equity and moving into rental properties, that's part of what makes up the real estate environment as well. But uh, So I won't say it's going to be a disaster by any means, but I think that it is a concern that we should... uh, we should sink a and be prepared for as well
0: yeah we've had a little bit of a surge in activity and as a result prices have been fairly stable they've come off a little bit in some of the condo sector uh this of course again the pent-up demand does speak to a lot of that brian but uh do you see uh, what kind of forecast do you have for for uh, for prices overall in metro vancouver going forward once we get through this this flurry of of people who have been who are you know what we were gonna buy in February, but we couldn't. So now we're still looking. Uh, Once that goes away.
3: Well, I think the, uh, and we rely a lot, of course, on our associations as well, meaning the BC, the British Columbia Real Estate Association, the Vancouver Real Estate Board, Canadian Real Estate Association, and they're all very good at making projections based on the data that they bring in from not just one company like ours, but all the companies. And certainly the the outlook is very good for British Columbia, uh, both in the Vancouver Lower Mainland. As well as throughout the balance of the province, uh, modest increases in prices between now and the end of the year. Okay, uh, and uh, and looking at again reasonably modest price increases in 2021. Uh, that's as far as they've projected at this particular point. Uh, the activity level we believe is going to still remain brisk, uh, regardless of pricing, regardless of uh, areas, and so on and so forth in British Columbia. It's still a pretty popular place to live uh, as many other markets are across the country as well so i think that we're generally uh, quite bullish on the market for the fall as you know our particular uh price per square foot survey uh just takes a snapshot of six months from january to june right but certainly after june uh in the july market uh it really opened up in and especially around vancouver and fraser valley so uh Again, optimistic on uh, the balance of this year. Yes, there's going to be some footnotes as we've talked about as it relates to mortgage deferral program and a few other adjustments, Uh, but certainly uh, we're going to come through that. And 2021 is looking pretty good at this point as well.
0: All right. And if you want to find out more about uh, why uh, you live in the most expensive area in Canada, all the details are at century21franchise.ca. All the survey, the 10 most expensive and 10 least expensive cities in Canada, all mapped out right for you there, uh, courtesy of Brian Rushton and his crew at Century 21. Brian, thanks for joining us this morning. We appreciate your time very much. My pleasure, sir. Anytime. Always a pleasure. All right. Good stuff. Brian Rushton in North Vancouver this morning. And there's your price per square foot survey of Canadian real estate for 2020.